Psalms 137. I want to preach to you. I I never do this, but this evening I'm going to preach to you a two-point sermon. That ought to get an amen if nothing else does. Amen. Yeah. But uh, I want to preach to you on an unusual chapter in the book of Psalms. The Bible says in verse number 1 of the 137th Psalm, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hanged our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof. For there they that carried us away captive required of us a song. They that wasted us required of us mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. If I do not remember thee, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I prefer not Jerusalem above my chief joy. Remember, O Lord, the children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem, who said, raise it, raise it, even to the foundation thereof. O daughter of Babylon, who art to be destroyed, happy shall he be that rewardeth thee as thou hast served us. Happy shall he be that taketh and dasheth thy little ones against the stones. Let's pray together this evening. Heavenly Father, Lord, I I crave and covet your unction tonight, Father the power of the Holy Ghost to accomplish in hearts what only He can. Now, God, You know each heart's need. We ask You to meet it in a way that would bring You glory. Father, we pray for the obedience of all those present here, including this man behind this pulpit. Help us to be obedient to Your leading, obedient to Your Word. Father, we love You tonight. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Psalms 137 is a very unique psalm. Uh, about half the book of Psalms is written by David, but David did not write all of the Psalms in Scripture. Many times the Psalms are attributed to various writers, and then sometimes the context of the Psalm gives us an indication according to who or at least the group of people or the historical context in which it was written. Most of the Psalms that you read will, uh, there will be some prophetic Psalms. There will be some Psalms that are praise. There will be some Psalms that delve into the heart of God and some that delve into the heart of man. Some will look backwards into the human experience. Some will look forward into God's prophetic timetable. But in all of the book of Psalms, you will not find a Psalm so unique as this. For we know as we study this passage that the experiences that are found in this psalm were from a group of people that were out of the will of God. I want to preach to you tonight on a psalm from out of the will of God. Do you believe that God has a will for our lives tonight? Now, that's an important question because there's many that would say academically so, but experientially they do not live according to that tenet. The truth of the matter is the Bible teaches that God does have a will for your life and for mine. It's specific, it is particular, it is provisional, and it is providential. God cares about the things that deal with our everyday experience. God cares about the big things and thank the Lord that He cares about the small things as well. God has a concern for you and for me. In this passage, we have the experience of those that have tasted uh, the bitter cup of stepping out 
of the will of God. It's a very real danger tonight. Do you know that? I don't say that to scare anyone. I don't say it to bully anyone. I say it as a solemn warning that we can step out of the will of God. We can do it with good intentions. We can do it with good ideas. We can do it meaning well, but we can still step out of the will of God. The context historically of this passage really deals in many ways with the message this morning. This morning we preached on uh, the vessels that were taken from Solomon's temple by Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian emperor, and uh, how that they were uh, detained from that place and defiled by his grandson Belshazzar, but delivered back to Jerusalem uh, under the decree of Cyrus. Well, in this historical context, we believe uh, that this psalm was written by one of those Israelites that was taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar. There upon the pilgrimage uh, from Israel uh, to the palace in Shinar would have been the time in which the events recorded here would have taken place. And so the psalmist, and I want to give you two thoughts tonight, the first four verses show to us the psalmist's consideration of his history and of his experience. And the last few verses present to us the psalmist's caution that he has learned to observe concerning the will of God. He makes the statement in verse number one that by the rivers of Babylon, the journey is well worn on. And do you know that probably the journey was not so bad for the first few hundred miles? Sin many times is not that bad for the first little while. Do you hear me tonight? In fact, often we talked about it this morning that the vessels taken out of the temple uh, would most likely have been placed in the 660 foot high tower of Baal there in Babylon. They would have been revered and elevated to a place of prominence and laid up in luxury. And no doubt the first little while of this trip was not that bad of an experience. But as they come closer to the place of their captivity, they begin to see the cruel nature of those that have carried them away. And the psalmist is sitting here and recollecting what it was like when he came to that moment. I want to ask you a question. You don't have to raise your hand if you don't want to, but if you'll be honest enough tonight, I know I'm going to raise my hand to this, not as an example, but as a testimony. Has there ever been time when you've been out of the will of God? Do you remember what it was like? The moment that like the prodigal son, you came to yourself and examined your situation and asked yourself, how did I get where I've gotten to? This is the moment in time in which we capture this psalmist. As he or she looks backwards upon uh, the events that have taken place in their life and begins to wonder with awe that they let it get so far, farther than they ever intended on it getting. And I want you to notice that there's a few things that I believe are indicative of a person getting out of the will of God. I want you to notice first off in verse number one, the Bible teaches that their peace had disappeared. Let me tell you something. Peace is a precious thing. It's a precious thing. The Bible says that there's no peace to the wicked man. Try as we may, the Christian only finds peace in the will of God. You can look for it everywhere else, every way else. I mean, you can try to buy it, you can try to barter it, you can try to beg it. But the fact of the matter is this, child of God, you're not going to have peace till you get in the will of God. We see that the first thing that they did that's recorded here is they sat down and the Bible says that they wept when they remembered Zion. 
They looked back on where they had been. Probably a place, in fact, historically we understand that the reason for the judgment of God in the carrying away of the nation of Israel was due to their idolatry. They had spent so much time in a good place not appreciating God that now they look backwards from a bad place and say, boy, wasn't God awful good to us at that time? The truth of the matter is, most of us are guilty of taking God for granted. I know that's true in my life. It may not be in yours, but it is in mine. And many times it's easy to grow uh, calloused and to grow indifferent to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We come to a place where it just means nothing to us and we take the peace of God for granted. But now in this moment, this psalmist looks backward and says, it was there that we sat uh, by those willow trees, by those rivers, that I realized for the first time what we had lost by getting out of the will of God. And their peace was robbed from them. There's a lot of people in this world trying to do everything they can to find peace. They won't turn to the Prince of Peace to get the peace that they need. I mean, there's a lot of things they can try. And listen, as a youth pastor, I know I talk about my time as a youth pastor a lot. If you was a youth pastor, you'd talk about it a lot too. It's a pretty interesting thing to do. And I look back and I used to see young people try to fill their lives with any and everything to make up for the peace of God. I mean, they would try anything. They'd try relationships. They'd try substance abuse. They would try popularity. They would try money. They'd try anything they could to find something to plug that hole in their life where God belonged. Their peace had been robbed from them. They couldn't find anything that would satisfy, because nothing satisfies like God satisfied. Nothing satisfied. They that drink of that water shall never thirst again. Nothing satisfies. Once you've tasted of the goodness of the Lord, you can't go back to the leeks and the, and the garlic of Egypt and be satisfied anymore. It's got to be God or you'll never be satisfied. Their peace disappeared. They sat down and they wept. Don't you notice not only the peace, but their protection disappeared. Now, I, I want to be very careful in what I say here because I don't want to be accused of trying to use shock preaching in any way, shape, fashion, or form. I believe the Word of God is enough to shock our hearts, don't you? Look at verse number 3 with me. The Bible says, For there they that carried us away captive required of us a song, and they that wasted us required of us mirth. God has always had a special place for Israel. God will always have a special place for Israel. People say, why did God choose uh, the, the Israelites? He didn't. He chose Abraham. Abraham became the Israelites. God chose a man that would follow him in faith. Not a man that was perfect, but a man that knew to trust God. A man that had failed many times, but a man that was willing to trust God over his own feelings and his own self. And from that man came a family, and from that family came a people, and from that people came a nation. God has always had a special place for Israel. It is the apple of His eye, the book of Deuteronomy says. And as you read through the Old Testament prophets, listen, if you're a Bible student, you rob yourself greatly if you do not read the Old Testament prophets. Because you will gain very quickly an understanding of how much God loves His people. I, I, I don't know that I can relate it. In fact, I know that I can't. I mean, you try to describe the love of God, you might as well try to hug a mountain. You're never going to get it done. 
The songwriter wrote about it and spoke of the love of God that could we would think the ocean fill and where the skies of parchment made, where every man, where every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. I cannot express to you the love of God except to say this. God loves you enough to not let you run wild. How many of you have uh, have had, yeah, I won't even say kids, but you've had young people in your life that you've cared about? Would you slip your hand up? Sure. may have been children, grandchildren. may have just been uh, someone, one of them adopted children that uh, God just put into your life and allowed you to uh, be a parent or a grandparent too. And one thing about it, I, I growing up, I, I didn't realize it then, but I realize now that every time my daddy laid a belt to me, he was doing it because he loved me. He was doing it to keep me from doing things that harm myself. He was keeping, uh, he was doing that to keep me from running wild because he knew if I ran wild, I was going to run into a ditch doing it. We find in this passage that to get the children of Israel's attention, God removed his protective hand from their life as a nation. God allowed some things to enter into their life and into their experience that brought them to devastation that he might save them from annihilation. God allowed, and you'll see it all over the passage as you read this uh, psalm, but also as you read the history concerning the nation of Israel and the captivity into Babylon, you'll find time and time again that it's spoken that the hand of the Lord delivered them. Delivered them. How did God do that? God did that by withholding His protection from the nation of Israel. Now, God was still in control. Listen to me. God is always in control. But he allowed some things in their life to get their attention, to make them aware of what they had been doing. Uh, Do you know, nation, uh, the Israel, uh, nation of Israel would not exist today without the protective hand of God. They're the most hated nation on the earth, and they have been. They have been. Listen, ever since uh, God took a Syrian ready to perish and called him out of paganism and made him uh, a vessel to be used for the glory of God, ever since God struck a covenant with that father of Israel, uh, with Abraham, they've always been a hated people. Always. They are to this day. There's nothing. There is nothing that the countries in the Middle East and many of the countries in the West and the Far East would love more than to see the destruction of the nation of Israel. But they cannot accomplish it. They cannot, they will not, and they cannot accomplish it. Do what they may. As much as they try, God will drive them to the sea before He will allow the nation of Israel to perish from this earth. That's how much God loves them. Now imagine how much God must have loved the nation of Israel to be willing to put aside His own heart's wishes and allow them to be taken into captivity that they might be spared of annihilation. God allowed some th- God may have been allowing some things in our lives lately to get our attention to show us that we're headed down a wrong path. The best thing you can have headed down a one-way street in the wrong direction is a roadblock. I mean, the best thing you can come upon is someone to stop you and turn you around and say you're going the wrong direction in your life. God allowed this for the nation of Israel. He took their protection away. I want to give you another thing. We read it there in verse number 3, but verse number 2 says, For there we hanged our harps upon the willows. And they make a statement, I believe it's verse number 4, where they say, How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? Their peace disappeared. Their protection disappeared. But we see that their praise 
disappeared. That's a big question. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? And I'm not talking about outward expressions of emotion here tonight. I'm talking about people willing to brag on the Lord. You may do that calmly. You may do it while doing backflips. But let me tell you something. One sure earmark that a person is out of the will of God is when they refuse to acknowledge the goodness of God in their life. They said the reason we couldn't, the reason we couldn't was because of where we were at. There's a lot of people that would love, would love, Brother Ralph. I, I kind of think they would have loved to have acted like everything was okay. But they couldn't. They couldn't and be honest with themselves. Let me tell you something. You're really getting somewhere when you get to a place where you have a desire to admit everything's okay, but you know you can't. You're about to get help when you get to that place. When when you get out of denial and into contrition, that's where we find these people. They were at a place where they said, we just took our harps and hung them upon the willows. We could not praise God. We could not offer Him glory. We could not offer Him praise. We could not speak of the goodness of God. I could probably give you a thousand reasons they couldn't. I could probably talk about the willow tree and how it was made and how it was planted, what the bark looked like, what willow fruit tastes like. Anybody ever had a willow fruit before? I'm not going to do that tonight. I'm just going to say, suffice it to say, because they were out of the will of God, praise stopped in their life. It just stopped. It's funny how we can mess up and blame it on God, isn't it? You'll find that to be a trait of Bible Christians. You'll find it all the way through the Word of God that there is a tendency to blame others for our own actions. You'll find all the way through the Word of God that the chief person we like to blame is God. Nobody wants to believe God is in control until things go bad and they're ready to blame Him for it. We found that they had no place of praise. They were having and living a miserable existence. And here in these moments, they come to terms with it. Like the prodigal son that came to himself. This was their pigsty. This was their hog pen. When they stopped and said, how did we get where we're at? And we see that the tone changes throughout the rest of the passage. The earlier verses, verses 1 through 4, deal with the idea of contrition. But I want you to notice uh, the last five verses deal with caution. Look at what it says in verse number five. The psalmist says, if I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. If I do not remember thee, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I prefer not Jerusalem above my chief joy. You know what the psalmist is saying here? He is cautioning himself and others against the independence of the flesh. Against uh, the inclination to forget. Let me tell you something. The Bible speaks of repentance. And I believe it's the book of 2 Corinthians. And speaks of uh, the vehemence and the vengeance that the church at Corinth had repented with. Let me tell you what happens when you get right with God. You learn to hate sin. Now, that's not to say that it don't feel good. Not to say that there's not a part of your flesh that desires it. 
But you learn to hate sin. You said, preacher, we ought not hate nothing. A farmer that loves his crop hates weeds. And a shepherd that loves his sheep, he hates wolves. This thing is not neutral. And that's what the psalmist is reflecting in this passage. And the number one culprit that he points out. Now he goes on to describe a couple other groups, and I'll deal with them in a moment. But the first thing he says is, if I... He understood that at the end of the day, it was upon his own shoulders to bear the responsibility of the situation that he found himself in. He understood that it was him that had got himself into this mess and only God could get him out and if he got back into it, it was going to be himself chiefly that was to blame. He says, if I forget, if I forget, we're so easy to forget the penalty of sin and the promises of God. We're so easy to forget the grief. And I, I, I speak for myself. This may not be you, but let your pastor be honest with you for just a moment. That sounds bad. Sounds like I haven't been being, don't I? <laughs> let me be honest with you in saying this. Most of us have sins that easily beset us. And things that we struggle with on a continual basis. And most of us, most of us, remember the moment that we've committed the sin what grief it causes in our lives. But like that, we forget it again. Listen to what the psalmist is saying, and I want to read it again to you. Look again at verse 5. If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand, the hand of power, forget her cunning. You say, what is he saying? The dexterity, the ability. How many of you are right-handed? Raise your left hand. How many of you are left-handed? Burn them at the stake. That's how it used to be, didn't it? Some of you probably got whipped for being left-handed. But uh, what he's saying is this. My dominance, my power, my ability. God, if I begin to forget you, I want you to cripple it. I want you to weaken me so that I will recognize where my true Strength is. That's true repentance there. What he's saying is, Lord, I'm prone to forget. Help me to remember. Lord, if I begin to exhibit independence, break me again. God, if I begin to go my own way, stop me again. He speaks of his tongue cleaving to the roof of his mouth. I don't know if you've ever been parched, but it's not a feeling that's easy to get away from. In fact, you're pretty much continually aware when you're thirsty with your tongue cleaving to the top of your mouth. You know what he's saying? Lord, I want you to be persistent and prominent in your reminding me of the grief of my sin and of my promises to you. God, I don't want you to let me get away with it. There's some of us that God has allowed our right hand to forget our cunning. We're in a place of weakness. And our tongue is cleaving the roof of our mouth and we're aware of our dissatisfaction. But still we choose to prefer our chief joys above the Lord's holy city, above Jerusalem. 
what he's saying is, God, there's going to be some things in my life I'm going to desire, and there's going to be my own way that I'm going to want. And Lord, I'm asking you to help me, because I know that I am weak, and I know that I'm incapable. The psalmist has learned in this one simple thought, listen carefully, the psalmist has learned not to trust himself. People say, well, I trust my own judgment. Well, you're a fool. You're a fool. Your judgment means nothing. The Word of God is absolute truth. Your, your judgment means nothing. There's plenty of people think they're right. I was uh, spending some time with a preacher friend of mine, Brother Brother McNeese. Most of you remember him as a coon hunting preacher, but we spent some time last week together. He said, uh, he said, Brother Toby, I had one of my teenagers came to me. He said he was dead serious when he said this. He looked at me. He said, Preacher, I have learned not to regret anything in my life because however I feel about it now, at the moment that I did it, I must have felt like it was the right thing to do. <laughs> Brother Jonathan looked at me and he said, you know scary part, preacher? He was serious. That was really the way he thought. That's the reasoning of humanity. The reasoning of humanity is if it feels good, do it and don't regret it. And you say, that's the world, preacher. No, that's the flesh. That's your flesh. That's my flesh. We see that he's learned not to trust the independence of his flesh. But I want you to notice he's learned not to trust the influence of his friends. He speaks of those of Edom. He says, remember Edom, O Lord, who in the day of the destruction, I'm sure I'm not quoting it word for word, but they said, raise it, raise it to the foundation thereof. Now, you'd probably understand that more as saying, race it, race it. And it's a word we don't use very often anymore. It's not archaic. We're just dumb. <laughs> Amen. But uh, it's a word that is used that means to bring to nothing to destroy. Edom and the Edomites were the descendants of Esau. We talked about that a few weeks ago. And so in many ways, the Edomites were like brothers to the nation of Israel. And you know what the psalmist is saying? The psalmist is saying, you know, I remember when the day of destruction came. And I remember that those, by the way, the, the nation of uh, Edom is spoken of as being in the midst of idolatry and helping Israel along in their idolatry. Those that stood with me in my sin forsook me in my judgment. Those that brought me along for a good time, they went along and they left for the bad time. And the psalmist is saying, Lord, remember them because I remember them. He's learned that just because people hang around you and tell you something's a good idea, that don't mean that it is. I mean, that's how many of you ever heard this growing up? You probably said it. If all your friends jumped off a bridge, would you do it too? You probably had a kid that said, well, yeah. <laughs> you know what you're trying to say? You're trying to say, just because there's a multitude of people together. Hey, listen, stupidity multiplies in large groups. Amen? We got the politicians to prove it. I mean, the fact of the matter is, just because you've got people that are willing to affirm your carnality, that doesn't make it right with God. Just because you've got people that will saddle up along beside you and say, well, I think you're going the right direction. That doesn't mean that you're going the right direction in God's eyes. 
And the psalmist looks back and said, you know, I had friends that told me I was doing the right thing. But lo and behold, friends can be wrong. Friends can be wrong. We got to learn to, man, friend, we got to learn to stand on the Word of God. We got to learn to use that, look into the perfect law of liberty, allow it to change our lives. I want to give you one final thing, and I'm, I'm done, I'm going to hush. And not a final thing before a final thing before a final thing either. Look at verses 8 and 9. Psalmist says, O daughter of Babylon, who art to be destroyed, happy shall he be that rewardeth thee as thou hast served us. Happy shall he be that taketh and dasheth thy little ones against the stones. They are speaking now of their captors. And they're saying... Lord, I want you to do to them what they've done to us. The psalmist is learning not to trust the independence or the inclinations of his flesh, learning not to trust the influence of his friends. But the psalmist has learned not to trust the allurements of a foolish world. Most people have trouble with that verse 9. I don't have trouble with it. God says it's okay. I don't have trouble with it. But let me give you a little context to it when he says, Happy shall he be that dasheth thy little ones against the stone. I don't know if you know this. And we're going to have a little bit of a biological class here. Okay, biology. How many of you took biology in school? Okay, the rest of you it wasn't offered in the third grade, was it? All right. Listen. Do you know what little Babylonians grow up to be, Brother Ralph? They grow up to be big Babylonians. Do you know what it was and who it was that carried the nation of Israel away captive? It was big Babylonians. What he's saying is this, I've learned that little sins can become big sins in a moment's time. And I have learned that flirtation with the world is a sure path to destruction in the life of the believer. I've learned not to accept what the world says is acceptable. We live in a society today and the the majority of the professing church is willing to accept something if the government will legalize it. Isn't that true? If society will condone something. Hey, I thought it was supposed to be that the church and the Word of God were supposed to be defining what was spiritual and what was right in the world. Rather than that, we've got godless, uh, atheistic and agnostic infidels defining what the church should believe. That's Something's wrong with that, friend. Something's wrong with that. God's Word hasn't changed, and it still has all the answers. But the problem is, people read the Word of God and they say... Phew, You know, if I believe that, I'm going to have to change my life. No, if you believe that, it will change your life. What the psalmist realizes is just because the world looks alluring, that doesn't mean that it's harmless. That doesn't mean like... You ever notice everything's cute when it's a baby? I I don't care what it is. You can see the most terrifying, ferocious animal in the world. You see it as a baby, and I mean, it'll it'll look like if it got any cuter, it'd just explode. No matter what it is. You can take the ugliest, ugliest, ugliest dog known to mankind. When it's a puppy, it's going to look cute. Let me tell you something. The deepest and darkest sin, when it is watered down to a small form, seems to be no trouble at all. What do you think Christ was teaching when he said, If a man lusts after, looks on a woman to lust after, he hath committed adultery in his heart already. What he's saying is this, just because it is uh, closed and secret and just because it doesn't seem to affect anyone, that don't mean it's not sin. That don't mean it's not sin. 
the psalmist says, the world has led me astray, and I will no longer trust the world. It is amazing how trusting Christians are to the world, how distrusting we are to Almighty God. That we are willing to allow the world opportunity after opportunity after opportunity after what the world says and teaches and preaches and advertises has destroyed our lives and brought grief unto them. Still we offer them our hand and an olive branch of compromise while God has done nothing but what has been for our good and we look at Him with confused and distrusting eyes. The psalmist says, I want to caution you against letting anything, any chief joy, rise above God's place in your life. That is when being out of the will of God begins. It may manifest itself in a thousand ways. But it begins when something takes the place of God in our life. Maybe not in our worship, but in our life. Maybe not in our religious structure, but in our life. The psalmist says, I have learned my lesson. I wonder if we have. If God's spoken here, I'm not going to, I'm not going to prime and pump and beg in, in an altar call, but I'm just going to have the piano player and slip to the piano, let's bow our heads. And if God's spoken to your heart, I want you to come, whatever the need is.